Hello, and welcome to the Methods Podcast. My name is Jadine Adeiramu. Today, I'm joined by members of the Methods Digital Team, and we have with us Tom Ridd, Lead Developer, Andy Lancaster, User Researcher, Josie Soros, Content Designer, and Harry Bailey, User Experience Designer. In today's episode, we'll be discussing accessibility. In particular, how organisations can prioritise accessibility. This episode was recorded on the 27th of April, 2021. Welcome everyone. Thank you for agreeing to be part of this discussion. Today, we're going to be exploring the topic of accessibility. In particular, how organisations can prioritise accessibility. Now, web accessibility, just to give a bit of context, is the process of making digital products that could be websites, apps, or tools accessible to everyone. It's about creating access to the same information for all users, regardless of the disability they may have. And to me, this topic is very important and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you all. And in terms of approaching accessibility, it's sometimes hard to know where to start. Andy, when would you say we should look or when should accessibility be considered in the design process? Well, thinking from a research perspective, um, I think it should be considered at the very early stage. So when you're planning, um, I think you have to do that to kind of make sure your project is delivered effectively and ensure that the process is as accessible as possible. Um, So in planning research, things I would consider um, things like how will the research be conducted Um, at the moment? That's primarily online, but if it's being conducted in a face to face setting, is it being conducted in an accessible venue? Uh, Thinking about things like recruiting and how that could um, have an impact on accessibility. Um, Having a think about the software that will will be used in a testing session or prototypes that are being tested. Are they going to be accessible to the participant taking part? Also considering reasonable adjustments and offering those to the participant um, if it's relevant. Um, as well as thinking that at the very beginning, I also think it's to con- it's important to continue to think about that as the project develops and move through different phases and keep re-evaluating um, to make sure that the steps you put in place at the beginning uh, continue to be relevant and if they need any tweaks kind of going forward throughout the project. Absolutely. And I think if we don't consider it at the beginning, just with you talking about all the different considerations that we need to take on board, it could certainly cause issues further down the line. With it being something considered at the beginning, and Andy, you touched on user research, I'm wondering, Harry, if you could maybe tell us who do you think should be responsible for accessibility within an organisation? I think everyone's got a different part to play um, in being responsible for delivering an an accessible product. Um, Ultimately, I think it's kind of with the product owner to decide whether um, the product is a a standard that they're happy to release. But I think as as a designer, I can design something that when I hand it off to a developer, it makes their life easier to implement accessible features, which in turn makes the PO's life easier because it kind of removes the question marks about whether it it meets a standard or not, because yeah, as Andy said, it's been considered from the beginning and it's gone through research, through design, through development. Um, And then you're not really left in a position where you're wondering about whether or not it's accessible, because 
you've kind of done all of that hard work already. Definitely. And while you were speaking, I could see Tom nodding along <laughs> for those who can't see because we're on a podcast. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Tom? Um, yeah, I, th I think there's a very close relationship between um, between developers and designers. It has to be has to be made even closer when talking about accessibility because the, uh, uh, the decisions that are made at design time have a very big impact on how much development is going to have to be done down the line. And uh, as, as Harry said, this, these are product decisions which interact on, on multiple levels. So uh, at, the, at the point where you're deciding whether to use a, I don't know, a, a set of radio buttons versus a, an automatically filling in list, it needs to be acknowledged by the product manager that if you go for the automatically filling in list, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done by the developers to make that an accessible product. So if the conversation will be had between designers and developers, that can be the, the um, necessity for, for the more advanced uh, development can be settled at that point. Absolutely. I really liked how you touched on decisions that have to be made at multiple levels because it's not something that's considered in isolation it's very much interconnected throughout the whole company which is why I think it's so important that we've got such a broad spectrum of people in this discussion to talk about accessibility because we all have different involvements with it and it's very important that we advocate for it. Josie what would you say are the benefits of improving accessibility? I think there's a, a little bit of a misunderstanding about accessibility in that it's, it's purely about disability. Um, while disability does affect uh, probably a bigger proportion of people than you expect, I think it's about one in five people in the UK, accessibility is more about um, all of us. So for, for something to be accessible, um, the person using it needs to be able to complete the task they're trying to achieve without encountering a barrier or an issue. Uh, so if we think about accessibility in these terms, you can quickly see how whether something is accessible or not is something that's clearly going to affect us all at some stage or another. Um, so accessibility might not just be related to a specific disability, it might be something situational, so maybe uh, tiredness or um, if you're unable to use sound or something, you might want some subtitles to be able to, to view stuff on the quiet carriage in the train. Uh, so really, um, the benefits of accessibility are quite wide ranging in that respect. Um, but if we kind of uh, want a, a clearer list of, of what those might be, it could be um, just as simple as avoiding discrim discrimination and any uh, legal challenges. Uh, you can reach a wider audience if your content and your uh, your your web applications are accessible. It builds positive PR. Um, it improves uh, search engine optimization and bounce rates. Uh, increases usability. So um, yes, yeah, so you can see there's there's quite a lot of benefits there. Absolutely, I feel like what really stood out in what you were saying is that accessibility is for all of us. If I could make a banner with just that. That is a big take home. Um, so we've talked about the benefits of improving accessibility. 
how can organisations better implement accessibility? I'll pass this over to you, Tom. There are, are sort of two two levels at which accessibility is being handled at the moment. And there's there's the ongoing projects which we talked about and how people can, how design can better implement um, accessibility. But then there's also the, the Big Bang projects which are happening, the Let's Fix 25, a 25 year legacy of the internet going on and not being inclusive of all people who might potentially use it. And those projects, we're doing a couple, we're doing a couple at the moment in uh, various government departments, and they are very hard. It is very hard to retrofit accessibility from a development point of view onto a website which isn't accessible. Um, moving towards a model where accessibility is included at every stage and in every feature of um, uh, of, of a project where your definition of done for a sprint for a feature in a sprint includes it being accessible is going to be one of the bigger leaps towards handling accessibility in a better way. Absolutely. Would you say that um, you faced any issues with working with collaborators, individuals, perhaps even stakeholders on accessibility? I, I think um, I think in government there's a, a great willingness to uh, think about accessibility at the moment, not not merely because it is now legally required and has been for a couple of years to make websites accessible, but also there's a there's a great willingness across the uh, across the spectrum of stakeholders to engage and, and say, okay, we've got to make our products better for everyone. But what where it doesn't People are, are fine talking and thinking about it, but haven't quite engaged with the cost. Um, and not just cost in terms of money, uh, though you generally need to get more developers on a project, but cost in terms of you might need to do simpler designs, you might have to change what you're providing. Um, it might take because accessibility is very hard, there's a very big trade up in the um, in the experience that developers actually need to uh, properly implement a, a feature that you know can be properly uh, read by a screen reader that um, can be read at all levels of Zoom, so that uh, you can change the text and it's text size and it still looks fine so that if you look at the underlying structure, it still looks fine. Um, so you, you need a level of experience on that project, at least a level of oversight on that project that isn't usually there. Um, we're, we're, at a, we're at a time when um, accessibility experts realize that and people who are delivering accessibility focus on that but the wider structures of government which for example the procurement structures have not, not taken into account those they are asking for this increase in quality of everything that they build that 
it's now mandatory to increase the quality of every piece of, of software build, but um, there's no uh, no change in the amount of time for projects. There's no time in the amount of cost of projects, particularly after COVID, the amount of government's willing to pay for projects is decreasing. And something has got to give, and it's probably going to have to be the scope um, of, of what is actually achieved. You've got to push up the quality of everything you do, but push down the scope. And it's up to all of us to work out how to deliver, how to what features we can actually deliver in a project. So those conversations between uh, developers and designers need to happen to work out how to deliver an accessible product quickly and efficiently. Definitely. Harry, do you have uh, something you'd like to add to that? Yeah, it was something you mentioned about um, kind of the level of experience required by a developer to implement some of these things. And I was just curious, um, where is that experience picked up? Is it part of kind of core curriculums at universities or is it self-led or is it you happen to be on the right team at the right time and you learn from somebody? Formal, formal learning for developers uh, to do professional standard work. If you look at computer science degrees, they don't really cover accessibility. They are, are more concerned with algorithms, with networks and things on that level. If you look at people who have come through code schools, code schools are great, but they are teaching the basics and teaching someone who doesn't know how to code to code and become a professional developer. I I do not know anywhere where it, where accessibility is actually taught as standard. It it needs to be on quite a, a deep level of front end development, and you can go to you can study front end development, but more often you are learning in the field. The problem is that a lot of people in in my business have, have taught themselves to code, and they've taught themselves how to build projects. And accessibility, if you are not accessible features and the quality of accessible features, if you are not um, impaired in some fashion, is invisible. You have to go the extra mile to provide uh, a level of development which takes, say, 50% longer. And all people who have just been coding for fun and don't have an impairment do not have the um, have the impetus to do that. They'll be wanting to move on to the next thing. So yeah, that that is a problem. You need to learn from experience and from other developers um, and from getting engaged in, in uh, programs that and, and education within within your professional workplace. Um, we are quite lucky working in government that there are a lot of uh, a lot of the people we work for. They have got those um, accessibility communities within government uh, within their their departments. And um, but yes, there is uh, very little formal education. Definitely something that that needs to change. Um, moving over to 
user research, just keeping with the same question, Andy, have you found that you faced any issues or challenges working with stakeholders on accessibility? And I'm particularly interested in your previous history to methods, because that would have brought a, a breadth of different experiences that you'd have faced. Um, yeah, so immediately prior to working at Methods, I was working at the Disability Equality Charity Scope. Um, so kind of in that regard, the kind of stakeholders within that organisation were very much bought into accessibility. Um, yeah, so I was quite lucky in that regard. There was definitely a priority from an organisational point of view, which kind of fed down into conducting research, um, development of web platforms. It really fed through the whole organisation. That is excellent. And um, I guess working with those stakeholders who value accessibility is something that you can carry forward into new projects to have the same kind of advocacy of doing what is right and beneficial for all users. Yeah, definitely. Um, Josie, I'm kind of asking you a dual question here. I'd also like to ask you the same question to find out what issues you have faced, but also what challenges you found have, well, what challenges arise in making content accessible? So, yeah, I think um, Tom touched on this really is um, it's not factored into um, any of the projects uh, usually in terms of having um, its own kind of dedicated time. It's uh, making something accessible as it expected to uh, you're expected to do that along with anything that you're doing. Um, and, and in reality, I think it, it is really hard to to have you know as with anything it's hard to do two things at once um so you you kind of uh, you do your work and you create the thing and then and then more often than not accessibility is something that you think about at the end if you have time um so i think that that for me is kind of the general challenge to um organizations is is that um in order to to really think about accessibility from the beginning and then get all the benefits uh, from having something that is that is accessible uh, is something that needs to be given its kind of own dedicated time and um, attention and, and pot of money, if you like. Um, so that for me, those those would be the kind of main challenges. Um, so the the second question was around the um, the the content challenges i think it was jadeen was it yeah. so um yeah so for, for something to be accessible um there's kind of four principles that the um the the um web content accessibility group i think i've got that right wcag i normally call it by the acronym um the four principles that they have based um, their stuff on is that um, something needs to be perceivable so it needs to be in a format that can be um, read or repurposed by a device, so like a screen reader or a Braille device. Um, so that might be something as simple as um, if you're writing, say, an annual report for a, an organisation and there are some charts in the report, uh, which is great when it's a picture and you can see that picture. But if somebody's listening to the report, you've got a shareholder who uses assistive technology. Um, when they get to that image of the chart, the, the report is just blank for them. They don't have that information. 
Um, it needs to be um, operable, which means um, so, <clears throat> for example, normally you would uh, go onto a website and you, you might use a mouse to navigate it. Could you also use a keyboard to navigate it if you have problems in using a mouse? Um, it needs to be understandable. So um, usually that means written in plain English um, or if you have uh, a particular audience in mind written with their needs in mind. Um, and it needs to be robust. So, you know, whatever technology I choose to access that information um, in, which could be anything like it could be a different browser. So can I view it in Chrome? Can I view it in Firefox? Can I view it in IE if anyone's using that anymore? Um, or can I use it uh, using my screen reading device? So you've got uh, perceivable, operable, understandable and robust. So those are the kind of the four main challenges. Um, but more specifically, uh, you've got things like um, you know, the contrast of the text, low contrast. You've got uh, colour blindness issues. People perceive colour in vastly different ways. Um, missing text on images, kind of touched on that earlier. Um, ambiguous link text, so um, using colour to signify information using tables for, for laying out of, uh, of the page rather than using tables for data. If you do use tables for data, are your headings uh, marked up correctly so that people can navigate them using other means? So there's, uh, there's, there's lots of challenges in that way. Um, and I think uh, forms in particular can be especially tricky. So um, especially think about the last uh, year and a bit where everything has moved online. Um, we're all interacting more online because we can't go and stand in the post office quite as well or we can't go and stand in the bank quite as well and talk to somebody face to face. So these forms that um, have been developed, they, they need to act almost like a, a person who is guiding us through that process of, of filling in the form. So those are just kind of some of the, the particular content challenges that there are. That is excellent. I really liked your point as forms as a guide. Um, Andy, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, um, so I mentioned my previous work experience already, but um, one of my main responsibilities when I was working at Scope was testing their online content. Um, so the charity um, maintain, I guess similar to maybe an organisation like Citizens Advice, quite a large body of online information. And I would test that with participants for it was put live on the website. And kind of Josie kind of covered off a lot of the things that you would test there with participants and kind of how it was formatted, that it was accessible for different um, users. Um, a couple of things that came up frequently when we were testing in terms of accessibility. Um, quite a lot of the material we were focusing on related to kind of finances, benefits, um, things in that kind of area um, and quite a lot of um, people struggled with the use of technical language and jargon and found that inaccessible. Um, so there are a few words or phrases that came up frequently in testing again and again, um, such as statutory, uh, means tested came up a lot, um, that people just weren't really that clear on what those terms meant. And also when we did some kind of more legally focused pieces, um, terms like power of attorney um, were just not really accessible for quite a lot of people that didn't have a certain level of knowledge. Um, one other thing that came up quite regularly and um, when I was testing content was that um, 
certain kind of content could be quite triggering for people. Um, so I talked about um, finances there. So potentially looking at how like a paragraph on say reduction of benefits or impositions of fines, if that's kind of not what if it's worded in a way a particular way it could trigger anxiety um, for the reader. Um, one other example that came to mind um, during um, at the beginning of um, first lockdown, um, we tested a piece about bereavement and um, what benefits and things like that people were entitled to after bereavement. And um, some of the people we tested with um, said this is really useful. It's a really interested, like yeah, interesting practical piece. I think you need to include a warning box at the top because if someone's reading this and they've recently lost, you know, a partner or a family member, this could be very triggering for them. Um, so yeah, I think it's about considering the emotional state people were in when they may be consuming that content as well. I think those are um, fantastic points, um, particularly the emotional state one. Um, and that plays back to uh, our point that accessibility is about all of us. Um, any any of us at any time could be in that emotional state. So just because we kind of don't uh, classically define ourselves as having a particular disability doesn't mean that accessibility won't uh, need to apply to us for you know one day. Um, but also the 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 legalese. Um, that I think that is the the kind of the the last frontier for accessible content is is quite often the battles that you will have with the the legal or the policy teams because uh, they are they're used to talking in a certain way. Um, they're very very resistant to having their content changed into something that's that's a lot easier to understand. Um, so yeah, I think that that will be the uh, the last great battle that we'll have on this journey, certainly. A battle I hope we will win. Um, Harry? Have you got any legalese pet hates, Josie? Stuff that just keeps coming up and that you can't, for the life of you, get changed? Um, I I do have an anecdote. It's not it's not quite legalese, um, but it's around. Um, in a previous uh, job, I used to work for. Um, I don't know if I can name names here, but I'm going to anyway. I used to work for National Grid, um, and I think it took us about probably three or four years um, to get them to to kind of change what they called they were calling this thing a transmission tower because that's the proper thing that's the term that the thing is it's a transmission tower so whenever they talk to anybody in the news or uh, on their website they would they would talk about transmission towers the um, whole of the population including you guys will know a transmission tower as a pylon but national grid refused to call them pylons for a good four or five years i'm like okay so you might be factually correct but nobody outside the business is understanding what you're talking about because they all refer to them as a completely different word. So, uh, yeah, not quite legalese, but that's my favourite anecdote in terms of uh, making language more accessible. Thank you. I'm surprised by just how long it took to get it approved, but I'm glad it got there. They're engineers. They're very precise. So, you know, you can't call something something that it's not. But you know, apparently you can and you have to <laughs> pick your battles. So, um, Harry, I was wondering, how do you advocate for accessibility in your role? 
So I think that there are a few different ways you can do it. I think early and often, as we talked about at the beginning of this, is the best way because it's much easier to get it right the first time than it is to retroactively try and fix something that you did wrong in the past. Um, but obviously you don't always join teams that have that kind of attitude towards it kind of built in and there is a lot of going back and fixing things you have to do and it can sometimes feel unfortunately like an obstacle um, that you want to be doing this new feature or open to this new user group but the service or the product as it is isn't accessible to people that are already trying to get on and I think in situations like those I think Josie was absolutely right it's it's not about it being a checklist and you going down and saying keyboard, screen reader, and all the rest of it. It's about saying accessibility is for everybody um, and framing it as a tide that lifts all boats in the, a service is, that's more accessible, is more usable, um, regardless of whether the person on the other end has an access requirement or uses assistive technologies or is feeling a certain way. Um, I think like colour contrast is the best example um, and the one that stakeholders can recognise in that something that's more visible to someone with an impairment is also more visible to someone that doesn't have an impairment and good visual design helps your entire user base in that way. So I think it's about trying to get away from the checkbox mentality and more towards uh, accessibility is for everybody kind of mentality. Absolutely. And again, not anyone can see this because we're audio based, but everyone is nodding in agreement with what you said, Harry. So that definitely hits home. Um, I think this is a question I can probably bring around the group. Tom, what would you like to add? Thinking over, over something that Harry had said, and I'm afraid I can't remember now what of his comments sparked it off, but uh, uh, it was um, it, it was something about the continual nature of accessibility and how it gets forgotten, and how in the, in the dev world we have a concept called tech debt, and often that's referred to, okay, you've been doing things badly for a long time, you've now got to fix it which is kind of the way that accessibility works. You just keep on working and then you work out there's a problem and you have to fix all this stuff. But what it's supposed to mean is that you do things properly and when you need to go fast, you accept we're going fast and we're going to have to fix these things later. You are taking on the technical debt. And in the, in the same way that if we could start thinking about accessibility debt, if we do things quickly for a purpose, for a product project purpose, then we're going to have to go back and fix it later. And we need to keep score of that. And we need to accept that it's going to be more expensive to fix it later than it is going to be to fix it now. Then we're, we're starting to look at a, a more managed version of accessibility and implementing it. I don't think it's something that we can just let fall by the wayside. Just like technical debt, we have to keep on top of making those accessibility enhancements, improvements to continue to deliver better services and better products. Um, I think this is a very important question, so I'm going to keep rolling with this theme and ask you, Josie, how do you advocate for accessibility in your role? I think um, as much as possible, 
it, it's worth um, just having, you know, you get to the end of each meeting, you get to the end of each sprint, you get to the, you know, the end of, of everything that you do. Um, and you just stop and have a quick check and think about, okay, so what have we talked about and what have we done um, today or in this last hour where we might not have considered all of the things that we need to consider because we're so used to thinking in um, norms uh, that those things can easily get forgotten. So um, it, it, it's just a human trait that um, you tend to, your mental model tends to kind of simplify everything um, and you too tend to focus on um, your your own experience um, or the experience of those that are close to you. Um, and I think accessibility really is about uh, thinking about those edge cases all the time. So uh, just having that kind of, you know, it might even just be a 30 second check at, at the end of every stage um, can make sure that you uh, haven't neglected anything that might be expensive to retrofit. Absolutely. And um, Andy, how would you or how do you advocate for accessibility in your role? Uh, well, I'd really kind of second what Josie said there. So I think it's about being kind of constantly mindful of it. Um, so kind of thinking back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Um, so say if I'm planning out a research project, it's about thinking about accessibility every stage that I'm planning. Um, also kind of thinking further in terms of when feeding back findings. Um, so kind of, yeah, what are the implications in terms of accessibility? And when kind of when other researchers present to me or share findings with me, if kind of accessibility hasn't been considered or, you know, there may have things been overlooked, being kind of comfortable to raise those and kind of make sure that they are addressed, I think is quite important. Just to kind of build on what you said, how can inclusive user testing improve digital experiences? Um, well, I think running inclusive user testing sessions help the researcher understand how different people's digital experiences vary and what potential barriers there may be for um, people using a particular product or service. Um, so one hypothetical example, say if I was testing a prototype with a participant who uses a screen reader, um, I think conducting that test would help the researcher to better understand how that participant processes information on a particular um, site or page or whatever and understand more about that individual's digital experience. Um, so kind of, you know, you probably learn things like, is that page formatted properly for this particular participant? Is the correct heading structure in place? Kind of learning more about how that participant engages. Um, kind of looking further on as well, I think a user researcher can use research findings and presenting research findings to build empathy um, for about kind of particular user experiences with other members of their team and ensure that accessibility issues are either corrected if that if that's what the findings have been from the research or if anything needs to be addressed in further iterations of a product. User research is a, is a, isn't always directly important to my day-to-day -day job, but very much keeps me grounded in who and why we are building this product. Um, 
for for signing off from a technical point of view we don't interview that many people it's just an impossibility in uh, qualitative research so taking into account through qualitative research every single um, technical requirement is very difficult but acknowledging that you need to put the time in that that's where for, for, for developers that it, a lot of value comes yes yeah, it was a, it was a quick one for andy around um recruiting users with accessibility requirements um i'm kind of curious i can't imagine it's it's easy um especially given how valuable it is yeah i think you're right um Again, going back to my previous job role, um, I was lucky enough that um, Scope run an in-house panel. Um, so they, yeah, they they managed a panel of around um, three to four hundred participants who either self-identified as disabled or a parent of disabled child. Um, so in that sense, kind of yeah, access to participants was very easy in that particular job role. Um, in other job roles, um, I think that. For most, in the, for the most part, there can be a cost associated to it. So, if you're going through an external recruiter, um, they will tend to charge more money um, for accessing a particular group um, who identifies as having a disability or impairment, um, which, yeah, which is frustrating. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of one of those obstacles um, that potentially, um, going back to what we we're talking about, kind of challenges with stakeholders if if stakeholders are potentially not willing to meet that cost that could be problematic in terms of you know kind of conducting the research with those participants i think we're drawing to a close this has been a really valuable discussion and to our listeners i hope this has sparked ideas and conversations on how you can advocate for accessibility on a personal level but also how organizations can prioritize accessibility because as we've discussed and a running theme that has been through this podcast is that accessibility is for all of us thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time <laughs>